Almighty God, thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for blessing us to be able to study and to grow from the book of Hebrews. I pray for your people all over the globe. I pray for a Monta Vista church family at this time, that you would continue to be with us, to be with our shepherds, our deacons, every brother and sister in Christ. Let this, let this study be to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank you on this Lord's Day for tuning in to watch a, another Bible class video from the book of Hebrews. We've been making our way through Hebrews over the past few weeks, and today we are going to be dealing with Hebrews chapter 9. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, we will be in Hebrews chapter 9. This is a very lengthy chapter, and it deals with some very complex and meaty issues. And so we want to just jump right ahead into the study because there is a lot we have to talk about in a relatively short amount of time. Now, before we start reading with verse number one, we're going to start reading with the first 10 verses in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to address a question uh, that was asked to me a few days ago in regards to chapter eight. And the question actually has to do with the last verse of Hebrews eight, verse number 13. Remember, Chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews was a chapter that talked about the superiority of the covenant instituted by Jesus. Remember how in this chapter we, we learned that not only is Jesus the high priest, a superior high priest when compared to the Levitical priesthood, but Jesus is also a high priest over a better covenant. He, had a, he is a better high priest who ministers over a better covenant. In fact, the covenant that Jesus ministers over is a covenant that was prophesied about at least 600 years in advance. If you recall, back in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 down to verse number 12, there the Hebrew writer quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. At least 600 years in advance, Jeremiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave many details concerning the new covenant of the Messiah. He talked about how under the new covenant, God was going to have a very close and intimate relationship with his people he would remember their sins no more. Their, his law will be written on the hearts of his people. All of these details are given in chapter 8. And if you want to rehearse that or look at that for the first time, see, see the previous video. But the point I just want you to see now is that chapter 8 deals with the covenant that will be instituted by the Messiah in the question that was given to me by a dear friend and a dear sister was a very great question. And I want to just read verse 13 and just deal with it very quickly because maybe you have the same question. It's found in verse number 13. Verse 13 of chapter 8, after quoting from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, in verse 13, 
the Hebrew writer wrote these words. When he said, when God said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, the question that was posed was, or it had to do with the language. The language of verse 13 is very interesting. It, it, it appears that when the Hebrew writer is writing this, he's saying that the old covenant is still in force and it was in the process of going away, but it had not yet gone away. Do you see that kind of in the verse when he says, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. The question is, was the old covenant in force even at this time when the Hebrew writer wrote this, wrote this down? I want to submit that the answer to that is no, it wasn't. We know that because in Colossians 2, verses 14, down to verse number 17 or 18, Paul makes the point that the new covenant came into effect when Jesus died on the cross. The old law was nailed to the cross of Jesus. Paul makes that point very clear in Colossians 2. And so there can't be a contradiction in the scriptures. I want to I submit to you that there are two possible explanations that have to do with verse 13. The first explanation is this. With this language, the Hebrew writer may just be making the point that while the old covenant technically was nailed to the cross of Jesus, practically it was still being done by the Jewish people at this time. Nearly all scholars agree that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. And before 70 A.D. took place, guess what was still in Jerusalem? The temple was still there. The priesthood was still there. Animal sacrifices were still being done all the way up to 70 A.D., even though Jesus died in 33 A.D. And so for about 40 years, even though the old law has been nailed to the cross, there's still mosaic, a mosaic worship system still being practiced by the Jews in Jerusalem. They still have the temple. They still have the records. They still have the priesthood. They're still doing animal sacrifices. But when 70 AD took place, when the Romans came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they also destroyed the temple. They also destroyed the Jewish records. They destroyed the whole worship system. And not even practically could the Jews engage in the old law worship system anymore. And so maybe the Hebrew writer is saying that there was going to come a day, even though the old law has been nailed to the cross, there's going to come a day here very soon in which the Jewish people cannot even practice Judaism anymore because the temple is going to be destroyed and the priesthood is going to be gone. And that's one possible explanation, but the one I tend to lean more towards is the second explanation. And the second explanation that is, that, that is common when it comes to this verse is what the Hebrew writer is doing with this language is he is just explaining, he's just explaining the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah's perspective. He, he, he is, in other words, he is saying that when God first said this through Jeremiah, 
in about 600 B.C. When God first said these words that I will make a new covenant right then and there, 600 years prior, the old covenant was then becoming obsolete. It was growing old. It was disappearing even hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross and instituted the new covenant. I think that when you look at verse 13 very carefully, the Hebrew writers is making the point that you Hebrew Christians shouldn't be surprised that the old law has been done away because it was becoming obsolete and it was growing old and disappearing even when Jeremiah first prophesied about it. Even when Jeremiah first predicted that the old law was going to be replaced by the new law, at that moment, it was growing old and disappearing. It was becoming obsolete hundreds of years before it actually did become obsolete and went away. Regardless of what view you hold, the point is the same. The point is the old law has been done away with. We don't live under the old law. We live under the new law instituted by Jesus. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making. We live under the new covenant, and that covenant is superior to the old. That's the point. Okay? So there are explanations to deal with the language of that verse. In fact, this idea of the superior covenant of the new will continue on throughout chapter 9. And so let's start with Hebrews 9, verse 1. And we'll read down to verse 10. Hebrews 9 and verse 1, and beforehand I just want to say I apologize. I can't go into a lot of details on these things. We only got a limited amount of time for these videos, and I know you don't want to look at my face for three hours. So I'm just going to give you the big picture of what's going on here, and I hope it can help you in your study. Hebrews 9 and verse 1. Now even the first covenant, he's still talking about the covenants. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, accordingly both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they are related only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And the time of reformation there is actually a reference to the coming of Jesus. But we'll say more about that in a second. Okay, there's a lot just being said there in those first 10 verses. I could do a, a whole hour uh, Bible class or maybe even a two-hour Bible class just on those 10 verses. 
But I'm going to try to break it down in about five minutes. First, here's one of the main things to see here. These verses, these ten verses are details. They are details of the worship system under the Old Covenant. They are details of the worship system under the Old Covenant. They tell us that while the Old Testament worship system was divine, it was glorious, it was something that came from God, it was conducted in an earthly sanctuary. It was glorious, it was great, it was divine, it came from God, but it was conducted in an earthly sanctuary. The idea of the sanctuary there is a reference to the tabernacle, and it would later be a reference to the temple. When he talks about the sanctuary, he's just talking about the place of worship. In the Old Testament, if you remember, the Israelites in their history worshipped and offered sacrifices in two, at two different places, physical places. First, it was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable house of worship. Moses was given instructions for the, for the building of the tabernacle. They were given instructions for how to build it, how to take it down, how to carry it with them as they went from place to place in the wilderness. The first sanctuary of the Old Testament was the tabernacle, the portable place of worship. But later on in the days of Solomon, Israel would no longer worship at a tabernacle or a portable tent. Instead, they would worship at a more permanent place, which would be the temple that was located in the city of Jerusalem. And so there are two different sanctuaries of the Old Testament. There's a portable one and there's the permanent one. But whether you're talking about the portable house of worship or the permanent house of worship, both places, both places essentially had the same arrangement for worship. And under both structures, under the tabernacle and under the temple, you had two different places for the priest to be. You had the holy place, which was the outer part. The holy place was where the priest, all the priests would minister. They would wash themselves. They would minister, offer the sacrifices. That's the outer part, the outer part. And then also both at the tabernacle and the temple, you had the inner part. You had the most holy place or the holy of holies. And so the tabernacle and the temple, they both had the holy place where the, where the priest would wash and minister. And then you had the most holy place where only the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when he went in there, he would offer a sacrifice first for himself because he was a sinner, and then secondly, he would also offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The high priest could only go into the most holy place, into the innermost part of the sanctuary, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And so that's what he's dealing with here. In fact, it is interesting how when talking about the most holy place, he says that in there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, the, this big box designed by God that contained three very important elements. It contained 
the manna, some of the manna that God rained from heaven to feed Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. And it also contained Aaron's rod that budded. That was a symbol that God had picked Moses and Aaron to be their leaders during that time. And it also contained the tablets of stone or a copy of the Ten Commandments. These things were inside the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the most holy place where only the high priest could enter in on the Day of Atonement. And so he's just talking about the worship system at the sanctuary in the Old Testament. And there's a lot more we could say about that, but here's the point. The point he really is trying to make is found in verses 8 through 10. There the writer is just making the point that all of this, all of this worship you see being done in the, Old, in the Old Testament, this whole pattern, this whole process, it was nothing more than a shadow of what was going to take place under the, under the New Covenant. It was a shadow of things to come. Verse 9, he says, all of that, all of that you found in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and the temple and the holy place and the most holy place, all of that was a symbol for the present time. It was never intended by God to be a permanent thing. It was never intended by God to be the, the final religion for his people. It all pointed to something better. It all was a shadow to what was going to take place under the new covenant. None of the stuff they did under the old law granted them full forgiveness from God. None of it, none of it granted them full access to God. All of it was ultimately designed to point them and to point all men to a better arrangement that would take place under the new covenant. That's the whole reason why he's bringing that up in verse number 10, to make the point that it all was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. It wasn't designed to be permanent. It all pointed to something better. What we have now as Christians under the new covenant. And he further elaborates on that, beginning in verse 11. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared... But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For of the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, Sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay. Here, the Hebrew writer is going to talk about what makes the new covenant superior to the old covenant. He says that the new covenant is superior to the old because not only do we have a more superior high priest in Jesus, but our high priest serves in a far better sanctuary. 
He serves in a far better tabernacle or temple than the high priest of the Old Testament. You see, as our high priest in verse 11, the scripture says that Jesus serves in a tabernacle not made by men's hands. Remember, the high priest of the Old Covenant, he served in a tabernacle that was made by the hands of men. The most holy place that he went into was constructed by the hands of men. But the holy place that Jesus has entered into as our high priest, it's not constructed by the hands of men. It is spiritual. It is heavenly. It is in heaven at the very right hand of God. We have a far better high priest who serves in a far better sanctuary, a heavenly sanctuary. And also as our high priest, when Jesus goes or went into the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly most holy place, he didn't offer up bulls and goats. He didn't offer up physical animals like the high priest did when he went into the most holy place on the day of atonement. Instead, when it came to our high priest, Jesus, when he went into the heavenly sanctuary, when he went into the heavenly holy of holies, he offered up himself. He offered up himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our high priest has gone into the true tabernacle, the true most holy place, and offered up a far more superior sacrifice. You see, through his sacrifice, offered in the true tabernacle of God, men like me and you, human beings like us, sinful people, we can receive true forgiveness. We can truly have our conscience cleansed before God. We can enter into a righteous relationship with God through Jesus and what he did when he entered into the heavenly sanctuary. We have full access to God. Israel didn't have that in the Old Testament. And so everything the high priest did and everything all the priests did in the, under the old covenant, it only foreshadowed what was going to be accomplished through Jesus, but what Jesus did later would be far more superior. It, it would grant us far more access to God and forgiveness of sins. The point he's making is, why do you want to go back to the old covenant when you have a great high priest who, who has offered himself in the true sanctuary of God. And then you go to verses 15 through 22. Verses 15 through 22. We start with verse 15. For this reason, he, referring to Jesus, is a mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool 
and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may also say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. You know, that last part there really sums up one of the most important questions we could ever ask in our lives. And that is, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to come here and live as both a man and God and die on a cross? Well, the reason why that had to take place is because without the shedding of blood, in the case without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there can be no true forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to die so we could have access to forgiveness of sins, but that's not the only reason why Jesus had to die. When you go back up, to where we started reading in this text. Another reason why Jesus had to die is because, according to the Hebrew writer, he was the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. We all understand, hopefully, that in order for a covenant or a testament to come into effect, then the testator must die. For a covenant or a testament to come into effect, the testator must die. Only when the testator dies does his testament come into effect. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making. And this is very similar to the way we in our society do when it comes to having a will. If I were to go to a lawyer and draw up a last will of testament, that last will of testament, that last will or testament would not come into effect until I die. I may go to a lawyer and I have him draw up a a last will or testament, and I say to that lawyer, I want to leave you, I want to leave you something. I want to leave you, I want to leave you my van, my Chrysler town and country. I want to leave you my van. And let's say, okay, let's say you say, okay, I'll, I'll take your van. Well, you don't get my van until I die. Don't show up to my house tomorrow if I'm still alive and try to get my van. That last will or testament where I'm leaving you my van. That doesn't come into effect until I die. You don't get that van until I depart out of this life. We understand that, right? We understand that a testament, a will, a covenant, it doesn't come into effect until the testator dies. Once the testator dies, then that comes into effect. And that is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why Jesus had to die. He had to die because he was going to be the mediator of a new covenant. Without his death, the new covenant does not come into, into effect. That's what he says in verses 15 down to verse number 18. And then when you get to verses 19 through 22... There are some comparisons being made between the old and the new covenant. 
Specifically, the comparison is being made in regards to blood. The Hebrew writer says that both covenants, both testaments came into effect or they were inaugurated through the shedding of blood. Both of them. Blood was necessary. When it came to the old covenant, when Israel entered into that covenant with God, blood was involved. The blood of animals was shed, and that blood was then sprinkled. It was sprinkled on the people. It was sprinkled on the law. It was sprinkled even on the tabernacle. God instituted the old covenant with blood. The shedding of blood. And if the old covenant was inaugurated or instituted through the shedding of blood, shouldn't that also be true of the institution of the new covenant? In fact, when it came to the inauguration of the new covenant, should not the blood that brings it into effect, should it even not be more superior than the blood of bulls and goats? It absolutely should be, the Hebrew writer is saying. You see, the new covenant, it was inaugurated not with the blood of animals like the old covenant. Instead, it was brought into effect by the blood of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood on a cross. And through his death, he instituted his testament or covenant. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making in those verses. In fact, this brings us into to another way in which Jesus is superior to everything under the old law. And that is not only is he a superior high priest who ministers in a superior sanctuary, but his sacrifice is also superior to any sacrifice that was made under the old law. That's the point he's going to make as we conclude this chapter. Verses 23 through 28. He says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things and the heavens to be cleansed with these. The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, if the old law was inaugurated through blood, if it had to be cleansed and brought into effect by blood, how much more so should the heavenly things and, and even with a far better blood sacrifice? Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and inasmuch as is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Okay, two, two very important things I want you to see here. And then that's going to be this video. First, he makes the point that if the first covenant 
needed to be cleansed by blood. If it needed to be cleansed by the blood of animals, how much more so should the heavenly things be cleansed by blood? How much more so should the heavenly things, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly people, the people of the new covenant, be cleansed by an even better sacrifice than those under the old? He makes the point in verse 23 that if the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was inaugurated by the process of blood, this shouldn't surprise us that the New Covenant will also be inaugurated by the process of blood, even the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die to institute the New Covenant. And then in verses 24 through 28, there are contrasts given in regards to the sacrifices under both covenants. He says, in addition to the high priest having to enter into the most holy place once a year to offer a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people, in addition to, have, to him having to do that every single year on the same day, the other priest, that's how often they were offering sacrifices. They were offering them every single day. They were offering them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They were doing them in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, all throughout the day. Whenever people wanted forgiveness for, for sin, they would bring a, a goat, a heifer. Some animal to the priest, and the priest would, would, would slit the throat of that, that animal, let it bleed out. And that was a sacrifice for, for, for sin or for sins. I mean, there were animals getting killed all throughout the day, every single day under the old law. Can you imagine having to live under a system like that? The high priest, he's... He's offering a sin on the same day every single year until he dies and then he's replaced by somebody else who will do the same thing. And then the other priests, they're offering sacrifices every single day for all of Israel all throughout the day. I mean, can you imagine all the blood and the animals that piled up each day? That's how it was under the old covenant. But when it came to Jesus and what we have our high priest doesn't have to go and offer himself over and over again. He doesn't have to do it on the same day of every year. He doesn't have to do it all throughout the day, every single day. Instead, when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he offered himself one time for all time. He offered himself once for all, the Hebrew writer says. When the Hebrew writer says once for all, that language means one time for all time. It never has to be repeated. It never has to be done again. Our high priest, his sacrifice was so superior and so sufficient that all he had to do was do it one time, and it was good enough for all time. It was good enough to redeem those who live under the old covenant, and it's also good enough to redeem those who live under the new. That's how superior the sacrifice of Jesus is. Jesus offered himself one time for all time. He bore the sins of the world one time for all time, and he will return again 
to receive those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus' sacrifice is superior. That's where that section is going, and that's going to be elaborated on even further when we get to chapter 10. But for now, and I know that was a lot. That was a lot to consider in about 35 minutes. And so I hope, I hope it gave you some understanding. It's a rich and meaty chapter, to say the least. But let me give you three points of application to think about, and then that's going to be it. I want, you to, I want you to take home three important lessons from this chapter. First, again, and I will continue to repeat this without apologizing for it, one of the key lessons to learn from every chapter in Hebrews is we should not be trying to live under the old law. And you may say, Sean, duh, I know that. Yeah, you may know that, but about 90% of the religious world doesn't know that. Whenever you hear somebody say things like, well, why don't you Christians eat, why do you eat shrimp? Or why do you eat catfish? Or why don't you stone disobedient children? Or why don't you keep the Sabbath day? When you hear people say stuff like that, all they demonstrate is they don't know the difference in the Testaments. They don't understand that the Old Testament was given to a specific group of people for a very specific time. And as Christians, we have never been under the Old Covenant. We're not under it now, nor have we ever been under it. We are under the New Covenant of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean the old covenant didn't come from God. That doesn't mean we shouldn't read it and study it and try to learn from it, but it's not what we're under. That, that's the main point the whole book of Hebrews is about. The, the main point is don't try to go back to the old law. Don't try to live under the, the old law because what you have under the new covenant in Jesus is far superior. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And let's make sure we don't miss that. Let's make sure that we never try to live under the old law. If we do that, we've made the death of Jesus pointless. Secondly, another lesson, let us never minimize the seriousness of sin. I mean, one of the main things I learned here when I read about these priests and how they had to offer these animals up every single day, all throughout the day, so people could receive forgiveness that just shows me sin, sin is serious business. Sin is so serious that blood had to be shed. Sin is so serious that innocent animals had to be killed every single day. Sin is so serious that God's son, Jesus, the perfect Jesus, he had to die on a cross so that we could receive forgiveness. Whenever we minimize the seriousness of sin, we also minimize the death of Jesus. And then third and finally, praise God for the sacrifice of Jesus. Praise God that we have a high priest who's entered into the true sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary. And through his sacrifice, we can receive true forgiveness and full access into fellowship with God. Praise God, we have a high priest who offered himself one time for all time. And his sacrifice was pleasing to God. It was pleasing enough for him to say, yes, these people can be my children. They can receive forgiveness. People like me can receive forgiveness. Because Jesus' blood was that powerful.
Praise God for that. Without the blood of Jesus, none of us would even, we wouldn't have a shot at all. And so we'll stop there. Next time on Wednesday, Lord willing, we'll pick up with chapter 10. Another very deep and rich chapter. And I hope you'll join me for that. Thank you.